Brunel Clary. I just saw you. It is so good to see you here. So, so glad to have you here. Uh, if you are between the ages of three and six, or you're teaching the ages three to six, we want to encourage you to go out for our kids' church or children's church uh, at this moment. Uh, honestly, I'm, uh, I'm a little self-conscious this morning. Um, last week, we had a guest speaker, and this week, everybody shows up, and so I'm thinking, they're here to see the guest speaker again, and you're like, oh no, it's Doug. Yeah, you got me. So here I am, and I will, I will try to do my very best, but we are honored to have you all here this morning. We are going to be looking at uh, Exodus chapter 3. And two weeks ago, before we had our hiatus, we left Moses standing in front of a bush that was burning, but it wasn't burning up. And an angel of the Lord, who we learn later is actually God himself, calls out to Moses from the burning bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses does something better than he does almost any other time. He answers and says, here I am. And it seems as though he's ready to be a part of whatever God slash the burning bush is calling him to do. And later on, he's going to kind of take a few steps back. But here... He's listening and he says, here I am. And then God is going to make this statement that's a little unusual. And I want to talk about this for a few minutes. He tells Moses, he says, Moses, take off your sandals. Because the place where you're standing is holy ground. And I want to talk about that idea. Maybe we can flesh it out just a little bit. What exactly did God mean when He said, the place where you're standing is holy ground? Does it mean that the sand is set apart? Is somehow the, the grass godly? Or maybe the soil is sacred? Maybe that's what God means. I kind of get the idea that that's not exactly what God was talking about. So if we can have this first slide up here, I want to see if you know us. Without saying it out loud, raise your hands if you know what this is. Okay, you know this is. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about this specific jet plane. It's a Boeing 747-200B. It's set up a little differently than some of the airplanes that you're used to getting on, which can hold typically a little over 300. This one holds less than 100 people. However, it is still huge in that it boasts approximately 4,000 square feet of floor space, including a medical suite that can be used as an operating room. And by the way, this jet not only comes with its own pilots, it also has its own surgeon on board at all times. The plane has two food galleys that can feed up to 100 people at a time. And this particular plane can fly halfway around the world before it needs to fuel up, which it can do mid-air. And even more amazing is this big hunk of junk can fly at over 7 
hundred miles an hour. And so for all you speed junkies, that is a mile every five seconds. So if you want one of these, there are replacements that are available and are scheduled to arrive in 2024. And hangar included costs just at $5.2 billion. And I did say replacements. Because it's not one plane, it's two. They have the tail codes of 29,000 and 28,000. But here's what's really special about these two planes. The moment that the President of the United States steps on one of those planes, it is then receives the call tag of what? Air Force One. Only when the President steps on the plane does one of these planes become Air Force One. Before that, they're called the Angels or they're called the Flying Oval Office. Or they're called really, really expensive. But the moment the president steps onto the plane, it then takes on the call sign of Air Force One. And that's where we have Exodus chapter 3. It's not the ground or the grass or the sand. It's not even the bush that's burning, but not really burning that's holy. What's holy is the fact that God is there. And when God is there, that is holy. And let's not confuse what holy means. Sometimes we, we assign negative connotations to holy, like, oh, well, that's a holy person, or they think they're really holy, or we even use the, the phrase, they're a holy roller. But this idea of being holy means that it's set apart. And so this morning, I want to remind you that God is here. Not just here in this building. God is here and in among you. And what does that mean for you? You're Air Force One for God. You're holy. You're set apart. And don't think that when you leave this place in a few minutes, don't, don't look at your watch, it'll be longer than that. But when you leave after class, don't think the holiness of God is going to stay in this auditorium. I'm here throughout the week. And I can tell you, when I walk into this room, it is like 40 degrees in here. It is freezing cold. But when I walk into this room, it becomes holy. Not because of me, but because I believe in the promise of God that says that He gave His Holy Spirit to me and to you, and wherever we go, we are called to be set apart. So much so that even the ground that we have, the cars that we own, and the houses that we live in are to be set apart for the glory of God. So there's one more thing that really kind of makes me scratch my head when I read Exodus chapter 3. 
And that's this whole desandaling thing that God has going on. He tells Moses, take off your sandals for the place that you're standing is holy. And there's a lot of different commentators who talk about this. But I had a conversation with Lynn Blackman over this last week. And we were talking about holy ground. And he presented a thought that I have never heard of, I've never read about, I've never thought about. But he said, hey, it's not because the sandals are bad. It's because God doesn't want anything to come between us and a real, authentic relationship with Him. And when He says, Moses, take off your sandals, what He's saying is, don't let anything get in the way. Don't let there be any type of insulation, any type of insurance, any type of career or plans or hopes that are going to keep you from really experiencing who God is. God came down to be with His people and He didn't want anything to get in the way. Not Pharaoh in Egypt, not the unbelief of the Israelites, not even the sandals on Moses' feet. And so let me challenge you this morning. Don't let anything, good or bad, get in the way from experiencing a relationship with God and His Son Jesus. There are lots of really good things But if they get in the way from being closer to God, then maybe they're just not good things at all. If it prevents you from getting closer to God, get rid of it. There's some guy several thousand years later who made these crazy statements. He said, hey, if your eye keeps you from being in a relationship to God, if it causes you to sin, gouge it out. And if you have an arm that's keeping you from being in relationship to God, if it's causing you to sin, cut it off. This is Moses fast forward. Jesus is saying the same thing. If it gets in the way from being in a relationship with God, just don't have anything to do with it. So now I want to pick up in verses 7-9, through and we're going to get the motive for why God is going to do what He's about to do. Starting in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 3, it says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of My people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Did you notice something in that passage there that seemed a little unique? For those of you who are in education, it's probably something that you caught on to. It's, wow, I've It kind of sounds like he repeats himself. And actually there's this rhetorical device that the writer of uh, Exodus is using and it's called a chiasm. Now, 
I don't really know a lot about language arts. I barely passed. But there is some great wisdom to knowing about what a chiasm is. And so for just a few minutes, I want you to see here, we're going to look at this. There's a chiastic pattern that's going on. So a chiasm or a chiastic pattern is A, B, B, A. Or in, in the case of verses 7 through 9, we have A, B, C, C, B, A. So listen to this. He says, I have heard their cry. Okay, I'm going to start over here. I have heard their cry. I have come to rescue them. To bring them out of the land. Oh, I messed up. I started on the next page. See? Let's try all over again. I have indeed seen the misery of their people. I have heard their cry. I have come to rescue them. To bring them out of that land. That's the same thing as rescue. The cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I've seen the way that the Is that Israelites have been oppressed. Do you see that? Okay, let's push the button once. Can you click it once for me? Do you see this? Now click it again. Okay, so the chiasm is important for two reasons. One, it allows for repetition. And the more that you hear something, the more likely you are to learn it. This is super important for a people who probably didn't read. And even if for some reason they were in the 0.01% that could read, they didn't have these documents in front of them. And so this is stuff that they would have heard, and so would, it would have been important for them to hear this, and God wanted them to learn it. But here's the other reason why I think it's so important that they chose this chiastic pattern, is because it places emphasis on the middle. It's not just that he saw what was going on, it's not just that what he heard, it's that God chose to act. I will rescue my people and I will bring them out. His saving was bigger than their suffering. It wasn't just about the pain. It was about how God was going to deliver His people. And honestly, we could land here for another six weeks. God can outlast 2020. Amen? And God can outlast 2021, can He? He can! And He's going to last through tomorrow and the next week and the next month and the next year and the next decade and the next century and the next millennia and on and on and on. God sustains when your marriage is struggling. He fills you up more than any addictions that you are fighting. He's more powerful than politicians, he's more important than mansions, and he's more satisfying than all of your secret sins. The story of Exodus reminds us that you just can't go too far. The Israelites were centuries removed when Joseph came into Egypt. 430 years. Do the math. We're around 2020. I know we're past that. I should never say that. We're past 2020. Subtract 430 years. That's around 1590. And yet God was big enough 
and powerful enough to come to them. They were miles away from Canaan. There was a hard-hearted Pharaoh, a desert, two water crossings, and a multitude of enemies between them and the land that God had promised to them. So God can do it. The question has to be asked, were the Israelites willing to leave Egypt? This is a big question. And it's not an easy one. And as we continue through Exodus, we're going to find that they are going to grapple with this idea of leaving Egypt, a place where they're slaves. In Jordan Peterson's book, The Twelve Rules of Life, he describes chaos and order. And he defines order as being that of the known. That of the usual. That what we're familiar with. And chaos is the unknown. What we're unfamiliar with. And I love how in Genesis, in the beginning, we have chaos. And out of chaos, God provides order. But as we begin Exodus, God is calling His people to do just the opposite. He says, I am taking you out of order what you know. Now, it's not always good. There are women who are stuck in battered relationships. There are people who choose to stay in dead-end jobs. There are people who are struggling with where they're at, but they choose to stay because for them it's familiar, it's order. And they say, I'm going to stay here because I know what it is. And God says in Genesis, I'm going to take chaos and turn it into order. And then in Exodus, He says, I'm taking your order and I'm offering you chaos. Now this is really, really important. This is very, very important. Because for too long, Christianity has made its living off of, hey, if you just come and follow Jesus, everything will be better. But that's not the calling that God has in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow Me, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to pick up your cross and follow Me. That's, that's not order. That's chaos. That's, I don't know where you're going. When God calls Abraham, He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a home. He says, okay, I'm packing my bags. Where are we going? He says, I'm not telling. And so the same question that's asked of the Israelites in Exodus is the same question that God asks of you today. Are you willing to leave the order, the known of what you have and follow God into the unknown and into the chaos? God is not a God of lotto scratch-offs and of dating sites and of fixing your flat tire on the side of the road. We have got to banish that from our memory of thinking that somehow God is all about making us happy. God says, follow me into the desert. But my promise is, I will be with you. 
if God wasn't with the Israelites, they would have been destroyed when they stepped foot into Canaan. If God hadn't been with the Israelites, they would have died of starvation in the desert. If God hadn't been with the Israelites, they would have drowned at the Red Sea. And if God hadn't been with the Israelites, they would have remained in slavery and never experienced a life with God. I would rather die of starvation, be killed by my enemy, or drowned in a sea than to live life without God. And so this is where we leave this morning. Are you satisfied with the order of Egypt? Or are you willing to step out into chaos with God? The story of Exodus is about a God who sees your suffering. He can rescue you from your slavery. And He will guide you into our promised land. My question this morning, as we sing this song in just a moment, is are you willing to follow God? Will you pack your sandals? Will you then be willing to take them off in the presence of God? That's what I want you to think about this morning as we stand and sing.